You're listening to Tell It from Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here's today's message. Let's go to God in prayer before we look to his word. Our Father and our God, we uh, thank you this morning. Uh, we can gather as your people to worship you. And Father, thank you that we don't worship a God who is absent, but a God who is present with us. God who is even present in us through your spirit. Thank you that uh, in our worship, as much as in the rest of our lives, we witness to your Son, our Lord Jesus. And in all of this, we need you to guide and direct us. We need to know what is your will. We need to know what is good and pleasing in your eyes. And thank you that we have not let, you have not left it to us to figure all of that out, but you have given us your word. So this morning, as we look to your word, we pray that you would teach us by your spirit and that your spirit would be actively at work in our lives, opening our ears, opening our hearts to receive that word and, and uh, preparing our hearts to receive that word so that it may be fertile soil where your word, the seed, finds good soil and, and, and produces fruit that's manifold as witness to the Lord Jesus and for your glory. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Wise children of light. <clears throat> in the world, it should say, and not of the world, but my question this morning is, are we in the world and also off the world? Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verses 14 to 18, prays for his first disciples and then all those he would bring to himself through their witness. And that includes us. He prays in, in John 17, 14 to 18, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you, that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify, sanctify them in, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Well, Christians since then have struggled to be in the world, but not of the world. If we are honest, most often, uh, we are both in the world and off the world. Even as the reports of last week indicated, uh, we are not all that different from the world, and that in the worst sort of ways. Well, how can we learn to be in the world but not off the world? Uh, Neil Alexander, a commentator on Ephesians, uh, writing in 1976, like almost 50 years ago, he called Ephesians the epistle for today. And things haven't changed in uh, 50 years. Actually, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians has been the, the epistle for today for 2,000 years since uh, Paul wrote it first. And it's been calling the people of God to be in the world, but not of the world. Why? So that we may have a witness for the world. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We are going to be in chapter 5, verses 3 through 20 this morning. 
chapter 5, 3 to 20, we are clearly in the second half of the letter, and uh, we are about five sermons away from finishing this uh, epistle and moving on to our next series. As we uh, said earlier, uh, last week uh, and before, there's a central passage that's the controlling theme of the epistle. God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has revealed that to us already, what he is going to do and the, his plan for the world. And Ephesians calls us, to live in light of God's plan for the world. So everything we are, everything we do, has to be in light of what God is doing, that is gathering up all things in Christ to make them new. A friend posted on Facebook yesterday that uh, one of the ads for the manufacturer of the assault rifle used in Texas had a picture of a toddler holding an assault rifle with a Bible verse, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. Where do such misuses of Scripture come from? Well, they come from a failure to read the parts of Scripture in light of the whole, where every verse finds a way, a life of its own, and is used for whatever purpose people deem fit. What they have failed to do, the people who use that verse for that ad, they come from a fa- they they come from a failure of what Paul calls us to in this section. A failure to understand the will of God and live according to that will in all matters of life. The will of God is the central theme of this epistle and provides the context for all that Paul has written and for how we ought to live in light of what God is doing in this world. In the second half, in light of what God has done for us, as Paul describes it in the first three chapters, Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that calling includes not only our individual salvation by the precious blood of God's Son and being indwelled by the Spirit, being rescued from the powers of darkness, uh, being the temple of God in whom He dwells. Uh, It also includes living in light of what God is going to do in the future and is already doing, that is gathering all things in Christ, things on earth, things in heaven. We have already been gathered, but God through us is gathering all kinds of people and Eventually, all of creation will be the kingdom of God and His Son. All that we do, all that we are, all that we, uh, how we live ought to be in light of that. So Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received in Christ. In chapter 4, 1 to 6, he, talked to us, he, he, he wrote to us about the relationship that we have with Christ and how that ought to keep us united. We are called to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And then in 7 through 16, we are told that the risen Lord Jesus, the exalted Lord Jesus, has given gifts to us so that we may be equipped to live according to God's goodwill and purpose. In chapter 4, verses 17 to 21, we are told that we have been taught the truth in Jesus. Or better yet, we have taught the truth who is Jesus. And we are... We were exhorted in the section we saw last week that we ought to put off the old self which, from which we've been rescued and put on the new self which is already ours that is in Christ. So we've been walking with Paul for a while now. He, walking is a metaphor for living. He, he told us in chapter 2 verse 3 that we used to be dead in the trespasses and sins in which we used to walk. We were the walking dead. 
but God made us alive by uniting us to Christ and raising up raising us up with him so that as people who have now been created in Christ Jesus we who used to walk as dead people can now walk in good works that God has prepared for us to do those good works include all of life everything we ought to do ought to be uh, by being in Christ would be good if we indeed live that way and then chapter 4 verse 17 he warned us we ought to no longer walk like Gentiles as we used to do but instead chapter 5 verse 2 last, last week we saw that we ought to walk in love we come to the last two walks we take with Paul in this passage in this passage uh, he tells us in chapter 5 verse 8 walk as children of light and chapter 5 verse 15 walk as those who are made wise in Christ so walk as wise children of light is chapter 5 verses 3 to 20 uh, we've divided in three sections before he goes to those two exhortations to walk as light and to walk as white he uh, wise he tells us that we ought not to walk in the ways of the world that we have to stay holy in an unholy world we have a new identity in Christ as those who are light and those who are wise and Paul summons us to live in accordance with that identity and renounce all that is contrary to who we are in Christ so walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called requires that we set aside the ways of the world and live in a manner that is consistent with a new with our new reality of being united to Christ and sharing his characteristics because he is light and he is God's wisdom to us look at the first section where Paul before going to the positive exhortations gives us what we ought not to do stay holy in an unholy world he tells us but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place but instead let there be thanksgiving for you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience therefore do not become partners with them first section has two sets of behaviors uh, each with three parts that we ought to avoid and the motivation for avoiding them Paul just finished saying in chapter 5 verse 2 the, about Christ Christ who loved us and gave himself gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God uh, such a glorious thing that Christ has done for us and he moves immediately to sexual immorality with a strong contrast if that's what God has done for us in Christ that uh, in Christ we have been redeemed then there are things that are no longer ought to be part of who we are and he begins with the exhorting them to stay away from all forms of sexual sin in verse 3 but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints sexual immorality or pornea is a catch-all word for all forms of sexual sin that's any sexual activity outside of the confines of uh, uh, a husband and wife who are united in marriage male and female any form of sexual activity outside of that is considered pornea incest or premarital sex or promiscuity or sex with a prostitute all 
illicit sexual relations or porneia and how there should not even be a hint of that amongst us. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 15, when the Jerusalem council meets and tells Gentiles to stay away from these things, porneia is one of them because it was prevalent in the world in which we, they lived and in the world in which we live. Porneia is uh, sexual immorality is listed among the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. That's our default mode by when we are walking according to who we used to be. But that ought not to be found in us. Uh, so the second thing he says is impurity. That, in, that includes all kinds of sexual corruption. The word is used in the Old Covenant for even ritual impurity. Uh, and Jesus taught that, that impurity actually comes from a corrupt heart, not from impurity outside. And sexual impurity is the primary form of impurity that is addressed throughout the New Testament. And Paul adds here all impurity. It means every form of impurity needs to be set aside. And the third one that's included in this first list is surprising, covetousness. Why include covetousness in a list of sexual sins? He could be referring to covetousness as an insatiable desire for improper uh, sexual desires or conduct. But mo more likely, he is including all forms of covetousness. See, sexual practices that are improper are often not about sex. They're tied to power. Uh, they're tied to possessions. Uh, they're tied to pleasure. Uh, and all kinds of disorders that flow from sin. And Paul would later on, in just a, ver a couple of verses, he's going to call covetousness as idolatry. When sexual desires take the place of God, in that we live for fulfilling such desires, uh, then we have turned sexuality into idolatry. And Paul says, these things should not be even named among you. Some people take it as, don't even talk about it. Well, can't do that, as uh, the instruction Paul is going to, to, to give us in just a minute. He just talked about it. Uh, so what does it mean? It says, not as much as don't even, not even be named among you. It's not, don't even talk about it, but rather stay away from these practices in such a way that outsiders would not even think of accusing you of such a thing because they're not seen amongst you. The charge is not to cover up immorality. Don't talk about it. You know, that's what we are facing in the, in the press this week. That's not what Paul is saying. Rather, uh, sexual immorality of all kinds should be so removed from us that an outsider would have no grounds to accuse us of such behavior. That there would be no cause for disrepute to the name of God and to our Lord in how we live especially in the area of sexual expressions. And Paul gives the motivation as is proper among the saints, as is fitting for the saints, as the saints are the holy ones of God. We are not holy on our own because of our union with Christ, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or because of being set aside by God. We are the holy ones. And those who are characterized by God's holiness ought not to participate in such, such things. Earlier on in chapter 4, Paul told us that we are being created anew in God's righteousness and holiness. This is contrary to what God is doing in our lives, and, uh, and that such conduct is uh, fundamentally antithetical to who we are in Christ, our new identity in Christ. Not only are sexual sins to be avoided in, in uh, chapter, in verse 4, he tells us to avoid all speech patterns that are contrary and unbecoming of God's people. Let there be no filthiness 
nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. There's a composite sketch of speech patterns that our Christians are to avoid given our new identity in Christ. You know, last week uh, Cynthia read that passage from James chapter 3. Mouths that praise God ought not to be used for unholy or unclean speech. He, he, he excludes all form of filthy speech from the vocabulary of a Christian. Filthiness or obscene speech, speech that is shameful or disgraceful, uh, that word could be extended beyond speech to other kind of obscene conduct as well. Foolish talk is uh, fool's talk, uh, speech that is void of understanding, uh, silly talk or stupid talk. Uh, all of these are prohibited. Crude joking. You know, Paul is not against humor or wit. Uh, this kind of joking in, that, in the world in which Paul wrote was actually taken positively. It has to do with turning a phrase, uh, being witty in one's expression. But Paul clearly has the, the negative sense of using, uh, of the use of this uh, form of joking. It refers to jokes related to sexuality, but also can be extended to all kinds of improper jokes, uh, ethnically degrading jokes, people, uh, jokes that tear people down. Uh, the jokes that are popular for us today in, uh, in, uh, in casting people in bad light, those are not proper for Christians. The English translations use uh, various words or phrases to translate this word. Crude joking, coarse joking, vulgar talk. These have no place in the, in the Christian's speech. And the motivation is just the same as the previous one because they are out of place, he says. These are not suitable for those who are in Christ. We are in Christ. That's our place. Uh, in that place, this speech is not suitable. This type of speech is inconsistent with our identity. Instead, Paul says, let there be thanksgiving. Uh, that's an unexpected alternative. You would have expected, instead, be pure or be holy. But he says, instead, let there be thanksgiving. Why? Because when we are giving thanks to God, uh, we honor God, and we also honor others as those who are made by God, redeemed by God. Thanksgiving, as we will see in the last section uh, of this passage, is an expression of spirit-filled living. Paul would immediately give us some reasons for thanksgiving in the next couple of verses. The Ephesians and we are people who inherit the kingdom of God and have been spared from God's wrath. Unlike unbelievers who indulge in sexual immorality and improper speech, these are people who will not inherit the kingdom of God and have, will experience God's wrath. How much we have to give thanks that because of what Christ has, been, Christ has done for us, we are inheritors of God's kingdom and God's wrath has been turned away from us. Therefore, our mouths should be filled with thanksgiving. He gives the motivation for both avoiding sexual sin and improper speech in verses 5 through 7. He says, first, uh, those who indulge in such things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ or Christ and God. He moves from behaviors to persons. The same things he said. Instead of a sexually, being sexual immorality, he's now a, a sexually immoral person or impure person. And, and he characterizes covetous people as idolaters. These are common behaviors for people who have no inheritance in God's kingdom. Yes, but the Ephesians, on the other hand, as he said earlier in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, have been sealed with the Spirit and have a guaranteed inheritance. 
if that is what we have, how could we indulge in such behaviors that ought not to be of those who have that inheritance? How could we live like those who do not share that inheritance? Covetousness is characterized as idolatry both here and in Colossians. When our desires, whether they are good ones or improper ones, take the place of God, that we live for the fulfillment of such desires, we have become idolaters. Greed or covetousness uh, is often seen in, in, the, in the Jewish world as, uh, as the root of all sin. Pride also shares that place. Uh, people sin because of greed of various kinds. When my desires take the throne that belongs to God, and I live for the fulfillment of my power desires, or my pleasure desires, or desire to mass possessions, whatever it is, those have become my God. And Paul says such idolatry has no place among those who inherit the kingdom of God. Not only that, such behavior belongs to those who, are, who will incur God's wrath. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He says, uh, first he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. There are always people who try to tell people that it's okay, God will forgive you. God's grace is sufficient. They've been always around. Paul would uh, anathematize them in Romans chapter 6 when they say, let's sin increase so that grace may increase. Make God look good by sinning more that he can look more gracious. Uh, that has nothing. So he says, let no one, those are dece deceitful, empty words. I love what John Calvin has to say about this in his commentary on this verse. He says, in all ages, indeed, Satan employs sorcerers like this, who by unholy scoffs run away from God's judgment and who lull as if with a charm consciences not grounded in the fear of God. This is a trivial fault, they say. Fornication is a mere game to God. Under the law of grace, God is not so cruel. He has not formed us to be our ex own executioners. The frailty of nature excuses us, and so on. We have that today. They call themselves affirming churches and welcoming churches and so on. And what they affirm and welcome is what God deems as inappropriate. These people, Paul says, are subject to God's wrath, both in the present sense, as he says in Romans chapter 1, and also in the future uh, form at the return of his son and as the judge. Unlike the Ephesians, who are called the children of light in, in the verses that follow, these people are called the children of sons of disobedience. That's who we used to be. Uh, but God has saved us from God's wrath by the precious blood of his son and has raised us up with him and united us to his son so that we are seated with him in heavenly places. And in such a place, this behavior is inappropriate for those who who bless God for that, as even as Paul did earlier on, we can't indulge in such things. And Paul exhorts us in the last verse in this section, don't even partner with them. Therefore, do not become partners with them. It's not so much as a separation as, uh, as the church is often seen, and you know, pull yourself into your commune. No, that's not what it is. Jesus said we have to be in the world. He has sent us into the world. So it's not an escape from the world, but it's a refusal to participate in such behaviors and speech. Jesus, the Holy One of God, came and dwelt among sinners. He was accused of hanging out with the prostitutes and sinners, and yet he remained the Holy One of God without compromising his holiness. His people, too, live in the world, but are not of the world, because uh, we don't partner in such acts, even as 
we can't avoid being with people who are unbelievers. So our, our lives ought to bear witness to the world as much as our words ought to that uh, we are the children of light as we're going to see in the next section. Paul writes his, his first exhortation in this section in 5, 8 to 14. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Instead of walking in sexual sin and, and, and in improper speech, Paul tells us and the Ephesians to walk as children of light. Turn away from improper sexual conduct and improper speech to other, of those who belong to the kingdom of God, those who have, who's, uh, against whom the wrath of God will no longer come upon because it's been taken away in Christ. Having warned them that people who live like that will incur God's wrath, you would expect Paul to say, don't do these things so that God's wrath may not come upon you. But instead, Paul gives us the positive. Don't live like that because that's not who you are or who you used to be. Instead, live by light. He, he says, uh, live in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Live according to your new identity as those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, as he would say elsewhere, into the kingdom of God's glorious sun, God's glorious light, we are to live as light. That's our new identity. Uh, so in this section, he, he emphasizes their identity of being light in Christ. Because Christ is the light of the world. They're no longer to live by the, the, the fear of God's wrath. But instead, because of what God has done in taking his wrath away in the work of his son, we are to, be, to live according to the grace of God which we have experienced in Christ Jesus who is our light. The theme of light and darkness uh, is common to most religions, but it's especially emphasized in the scriptures. The, the theme of light and darkness is found from the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis chapter 1, God separates light from darkness. God himself is light. In him there is no darkness at all, uh, John would write in his first epistle. Jesus says he's the light of the world. In Exodus one of the plagues, the Egyptians are plunged in palpable darkness. That's one of the plagues. But the children of Israel, when they're brought out of Egypt, are, are led by a pillar of light that guides them through the dark wilderness in which they make their way. Most of Paul's instructions here probably have the prophet Isaiah in mind. Some of these verses for us, we hear... In, in the various Christmas uh, compositions, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the prophet writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. In chapter 60, he writes, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Same chapter 60, verses 19 and 20. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall, be no more, your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, 
and your days of mourning shall be ended. The book of Revelation ends in chapter 21, verses 23 and 24, and the city has, that's the new heavens and the new earth, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, that we are the light, because we have been united to him, who is the light of the world. Chapter 5, verse 8 is in one sense a summary of uh, all that we are in our salvation. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the dark, in the Lord. Notice Paul doesn't say you were in darkness or you are in light. He says at one time you were darkness, and now you are light. Just as he used, uh, said before in chapter 2, we were dead, but now we are alive. Or in chapter 2, the, the latter part, that we were separated from God, but we now are God's temple where he himself dwells through his spirit. We were darkness, but now we are light, but only in the Lord. All aspects of our salvation are because of our union with Christ. We don't enjoy anything from God apart from Christ. It's because of our virtue of being in Christ, we enjoy all benefits of our salvation, including being light in him. If that's our reality, Paul says, walk as children of light. And he tells us in verse 9 what that life looks like, a walking in light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. These are also the virtues that are found in, um, in Galatians 5, where uh, Paul characterizes these virtues as, as fruit. As those who walk in the light, the light of Christ, our lives ought to be characterized by goodness and righteousness and truth. All of these are characteristics of God himself. Paul has said earlier that we are being created anew according to God's holiness and righteousness. He has said earlier that we have been created for good works that God has prepared for us to do. And that good works is not just the special deeds that we do, but it's goodness in everything we are and everything we do. He has just told us in chapter 4 that we have been taught the truth that is Christ himself. If that is what we have been taught, that we have been created to do, and that we are being formed in God's likeness, then the way of life that we live will produce fruit that is good and right and true. And he says we ought to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. As those who are in Christ, we now have the capacity to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, and we are called to live accordingly. That's what it means to live as children of light. The word discern means to examine, to test, to, to prove or approve. Paul would call us to a transformed mind in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We ought to look at all aspects of life, even from our eating and our drinking, uh, to see how can we do this in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord, in light of what God is doing in this world, gathering up all things in Christ, in heaven and on earth. If that's what is God is doing, how can I live in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord in my life, in my relationships? Instead of that, we participate in darkness. And Paul says, we ought not to participate in darkness, but expose it. Take no part, he says, in the unfruitful work of darkness, but instead expose them. 
He, remi he reminded them in verse 7 that they ought to no longer participate in the sinful ways of life of unbelievers, but instead expose them. They are to shine their light into darkness. Jesus uses the same language in John chapter 16, verse 8, when he says it's the work of the Holy Spirit in exposing the world with regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. The world is lost in sin. It has no understanding of God's righteousness. It is not aware that God's judgment is coming upon people who live like that. And it's the Holy Spirit through us helps the world to see what is sin. What does God's righteousness look like? Why should we all live in a way that we would experience God's judgment, but instead turn to Christ in whom the judgment would be taken away? Paul says, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. The deeds done in darkness are shameful, and even to mention that is improper for believers. If that's the case... How do we expose them if we can't even mention them? Right? We find out how in verses 13 to 14, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and, the Christ, and, and Christ will shine on you. This is the, these are the key verses to how we expose the deeds of darkness. Paul writes that anything exposed, exposed to light becomes visible. We are to shine our light into the darkness by how we live, how we speak, how we relate to one another. It is through our witness that God shines His light into the world so that people who dwell in darkness may see the light and be brought to Christ. We too used to dwell in that darkness and God shined that light upon us and brought us to the light that is Christ Himself. We, we expose the darkness by making it visible through how we live, not by condemning the darkness. We didn't, we're not called to curse the darkness, but to shine our light into it by our lives. We were dead. Christ's light shone upon us and made us alive. Now we are light in Christ, and when we shine our light on unbelievers through our witness, they too are brought out of darkness and to the newness of life that is lived into Christ. So we live as children of light, not by removing ourselves from darkness, but by dispelling the darkness by how we live, by shining our light, how we speak, uh, what we do, what we do not do, so that those who still dwell in darkness can recognize what is sin, what righteousness looks like, and why the judgment of God is such a terrible thing to be um, await awaited on, whether it's in the present or in the future sense. So shine your light in darkness includes how we live as children of light in addition to having all our lives being characterized by goodness and righteousness and truth. And the second exhortation he has is walk as wise children. In verses 15 to 20 he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second section actually goes to verse 21. So walking in a manner worthy of our calling and our identity in Christ is not only to walk as children of light, but also as God's wise children. And this wise living requires the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Paul calls the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit in chapter 5, verse 18. And the result of being filled with the Spirit leads to five things. 
Four of them are found here in verses 19 to 20, addressing, singing, making melody, and giving thanks. The fifth one, submitting to one another, is found in verse 21. And verse 21 governs everything that Paul has to say from 21 all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. So we will pick that up in the, in the next section. Uh, but here you look at the first four things. So uh, those who are living as children, wise children of God, uh, they are empowered by the Spirit to live in a way that, is, that would characterize all of their lives. First of Paul begins with the exhortation. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. This is the first of three contrasts in this section, not as unwise, but as wise. So the, the previous section said, not as darkness, but as light. So this section, he contrasts living wisely versus living foolishly. So the entire section calls for careful living. And careful living is wise living, for we are in Christ, who is not only our light, but who is our wisdom from God. If we are in Christ, our lives have to be characterized by wisdom. This is a call to moral discernment. Life is not to be lived aimlessly or unwisely. And he would go on to describe what such wise living looks like. It requires the proper use of time. He will call it redeeming the time. It would require rejecting foolishness. It would require discerning the will of God. And all of this can be done only through the power of the Holy Spirit filling us. So he says first uh, that wise living requires that we redeem the time, making the best use of time because the days are evil. The best use of time is literally redeeming the time, he says, because the days are evil. When did the days get evil? Uh, it started all the way back in the garden when uh, Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, and they only get worse since then. And uh, we complain about how bad things are, but things have been bad for a while, and they're only getting worse. Um, and we too used to live in that evil as part of that evil. And even now in Christ, we, f we face, as Paul would tell us in chapter 6, uh, a, a warfare with, with, with such evil. An evil that seeks to captivate us and bring us back into its way of life. Therefore, we need to be watchful. We need to be wise. So Paul's primary concern here is wise living. Uh, but it has to do with time. Live in an awareness of the time in which we live. He would say the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7. What, what is the time in which we live? This is the time between the first coming of our Lord and the second coming. The time has been shortened, he would say elsewhere. Uh, so uh, the, the instructions in, in 1 Corinthians are pretty stark. He would write in 1 Corinthians um, 7, writing in the context of marriage, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Uh, that's a negative way of saying what he says positively in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 in Ephesians. God is gathering up all things in Christ, things on earth, things in heaven. So in everything you do, from your use of time, use your finances in your relationship, live in light of what God is doing. Uh, that's the instruction. Don't live as though uh, the world, which does not know what time it is, lives in, in all its doings. So he says, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Uh, this is the second contrast. Don't be foolish, but understand what the, 
uh, or discern what is God's will. God has revealed his will for us, as we saw in, First Corinthians, in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. We need to discern how that will is, is lived out, what God is doing in this world, and how God will make all things new. That will of God that has been revealed to us, how do we live that revealed will in the daily circumstances of our life? God has let us in on his plans. How do we live as those who know what is coming? when the world lives as though the uh, world has no understanding of what is coming. See, we often try to find out or seek the will of God in those big things in life, right? Uh, who should I get married to? Should I take on this job? Uh, but what Paul is calling us here and all of Scripture uh, is the daily stuff. Elsewhere, Paul will say, this is the will of God that you give thanks. How often do we think of that as God's will? This is the will of God that uh, that there should be no sexual immorality among us. That's God's will. That's called God's revealed will. If we would daily live in light of God's will, those big things are, will become clear because we are habitually people who seek what is pleasing to the Lord, as he said earlier, who seek the will of God. And the more we live according to that, the clearer the will of God will be. Wise living is not left up to us, our own discernment. It comes through the, the, the filling of the Spirit. And, and from here on, chapter 5, verse 18, till the end of the epistle, Paul will, look, will tell us what this life of discernment would look like. The filling of the Spirit is necessary for that practical wisdom for daily living. He would go on to speak how discerning the will of God works in uh, worship, as we're going to see in just a few minutes. Uh, he will go on to tell us as we'll see in a couple of weeks, how discernment of the will of God works in marital relationships. Pastor Jim will speak to us on Father's Day on how the discernment of the will of God works in parenting. Uh, we will come back and see how the, the will of God works in, in our work and in confronting evil. So he gives the instruction, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Avoid drunkenness. Drunkenness has to do with foolish living. It leads to debauchery or dissipation. The word debauchery means uh, wastefulness. We kind of use that, right? Not, man, he was wasted. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what uh, alcohol... Well, you know, the Scripture doesn't say don't drink. It says don't be drunk. There's a difference. But quite often, even as uh, he said last week, uh, be angry but do not sin... Anger is the milieu in which uh, sin often is ready to pounce. And so also, quite often, uh, drinking leads to other things that are unfitting for, unfit for God's people. So to be a Christian instead is not to be filled with wine that controls us, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Paul has made that clear in Romans chapter 8, that there's no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. It is the Spirit that unites us to Christ. But there's a difference between the indwelling of the Spirit, being baptized in the Spirit that is being united to Christ, and the filling of the Spirit. Uh, there are two kinds of filling that Scripture speaks of. There's, there's a habitual filling, the people who are always Spirit-controlled. Uh, the, the work of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit is very evident in their lives. People like our Lord, 
uh, people like Barnabas and uh, Stephen, even in all the other people who are chosen in chapter 6, were people who are full of the Holy Spirit. They can be recognized as people who are filled with the Spirit because you see in them the goodness and the truth and the righteousness that he spoke of earlier. But there's also uh, special fillings of the Spirit for uh, empowerment. It's usually for uh, witness, for proclaiming the gospel, and so on. We see that, for example, in Peter, in uh, in, in, in the book of Acts and, uh, and others also. But notice here, uh, to be filled with the Spirit is a command. Be filled with the Spirit, but it's in a passive voice that it's a command that we can't fulfill by ourselves. The, we have to be acted upon by the Spirit. So how do we, how are we filled by the Spirit? Uh, there's no instruction here that, you know, pray for the filling of the Spirit, or here are five steps by which you can be filled with the Spirit. Uh, there's, an, uh, there's an incident in the book of Acts that helps us to understand how people were filled with the Spirit uh, as Paul commands us here. We find that in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John were arrested after uh, they healed a lame man and when they were released, we are told in chapter 4 verse 23, they went to their friends and reported what, they, what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They said they're not to talk about Christ and they said no. We will do what God has told us to do. And when they heard it, they lifted, this is the people of God, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They didn't ask for the filling of the Spirit. They asked to speak your word with all boldness. And in order for them to do that, God filled them with the Spirit. So what we ought to pray for is that we would be obedient to the word of God. And when we ask God for that, He enables us through the filling of the Spirit so that we may indeed, moment by moment in, in the circumstances that we, f we find ourselves, we live in a manner pleasing to the Lord. We discern the will of God and live according to it. The filling of the Spirit leads to, as I said earlier, five things. Four of them we find in verses 19 to 20, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I used to be annoyed with the people when they said, now so-and-so is going to come and sing for us in a worship service. Like, they're not singing for us, they're singing for the Lord. But, uh, but here Paul writes, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there is a horizontal aspect to our singing. We instruct each other, we call each other to praise and worship through our song. So what we sing matters because far more people are going to be instructed by what we sing than what you hear from a preacher. Because uh, songs move us emotionally and most people are moved to action by emotions 
than by their mind, as is often falsely taught. Uh, most people do things because they, their heart led them there, not because their mind told them that's the way to go. And songs move our heart, and it's important that we sing the truth to one another. Uh, but it's not just to each other, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So singing is first and foremost an act of worship, it is to the Lord we sing. And the Lord, in Ephesians and almost the New Testament, is always the Lord Jesus. Here's the worship of the Lord Jesus all the way back in the New Testament. Jesus is not God because somebody figured it out 400, 300 years later. Even from the very beginning, he's worshipped as Lord. Uh, Elizabeth will say to Mary while, uh, uh, while the Lord is still in the womb, uh, the mother of my Lord, she would say. So from, throughout the scriptures, Jesus acknowledges God. And here's a passage for the deity of Christ. He is worthy of worship singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And notice the various forms of worship, uh, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Uh, people try to see what exactly these are, but we can't really tell. Psalms, obviously, or possibly, are the psalms of the Old Testament, those 150 songs that we find. But hymns uh, and spiritual songs, we can't discern. But what we can surely say is different genres were employed in the worship of God. God is worthy of all and every genres that, through which the Spirit leads us to worship. And in addition to singing, worship includes giving thanks. Giving thanks always and everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the Trinitarian pattern here. Being filled with the Spirit leads to thanksgiving to God the Father and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier on, he said in chapter, uh, in the, in chapter 5, verses 3 to 8, instead of sexual immorality and uh, uh, improper speech, what ought to be found in us is thanksgiving. And here we find out that that thanksgiving is a result of being spirit-filled. But what is intriguing is that he says, always and, um, uh, and in everything, give thanks to God. And we ask God, how can I give thanks for buffalo? How can I give thanks for Uvalde? How can I give thanks to the terrible evils that I see in the world? See, there are two forms of songs in the scriptures. There's songs of lament, and there are songs of thanksgiving, and they go together. Songs of lament acknowledge the evil that we find in this world and lament before God. But they're always accompanied by songs of thanksgiving, not because of the evil we see, but because of what God is going to do. God has already begun to do in His Son. In His Son, He has addressed the problem of evil. He has paid the price for the sins of the world. And one day when His son's return, Son returns, there will be no more buffalo. There will be no more school shootings. Because in Christ, this world is going to be made new. The psalmist, in Psalm 89, we find it throughout the Psalms, Pick any lament psalm, you'll find it. How long, O Lord, in Psalm 89, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? In verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Those are songs that are biblical. O Lord, how can this racial hostility and violence prevail in our nation? How long, O Lord? But that's not the note in which the psalmist ends. He said, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. We can give thanks to God for who he is, what he is doing, and one day will complete 
That's why Paul would say always and in everything, because the, one, the reality that we see is not the only reality there is. There is a reality of what God has promised he will do, and will indeed do it. What does it mean to live as wise children of light? Avoid sexual immorality. Last week was a hard one for the church. You know, years ago, when the sexual scandal in the Roman Catholic Church was exposed, we were quick to point fingers and say, ah, see, bad theology. That's the result of, uh, the result we see this in this abuse. But now people with whom we would align ourselves theologically are accused of the same sin. What happened? What do we do? We are in the world and off the world. Uh, Paul would write to the Corinthians, No temptation has ceased to accept what is common to man, which means I am capable of doing everything that is out there. The only thing is, for me, God has provided a way out. He is faithful. He will not test you beyond what you can bear. So our job is to find that way out that God has provided by the Spirit to discern the will of God. Uh, think about what is pleasing to the Lord and take that way out that He has provided. So sexual immorality, we are quick to condemn some forms of sexual immorality. But what about what we saw in the reports, the sexual abuse and, and rape? Um, those have no place in the church we don't have a witness. What do we do when this has happened in the church? We humble ourselves. We confess our sin. We repent. But we don't have the right to call good and acceptable what God has said is evil. So we continue to testify, not out of a pride of self-righteousness that we've got it all right, but with the humility that but for the grace of God... I would also be walking in a way that is improper for those who belong to God. Homosexuality, adultery, pornography, uh, all forms of sexual abuse, these are all taboo for those who are in the light, those who are wise children of God. See, what we do with our body matters to God. The first question in any form of sexuality is not, what do I do with my body, but to whom does my body belong? As those who are created in God's image, we are believers or unbelievers, we all belong to God. And as believers, we are purchased with a price. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to Christ. Paul would ask the Corinthians, how can you take Christ and unite him to a prostitute because we belong to Christ? Christ is in us. We are in Christ. So all forms of sexual immorality are improper for those who belong to Christ. Our body has a future. So what we do with it in the present matters. See, what we need is a, a positive theology of sexuality. Now, God's, why is it that God has determined that sexual expression be limited to marriage? And what does that say about who God is? What does it say about the oneness of God uh, that is expressed in human sexuality in marriage? What does uh, human sexuality say about differentiation within the Godhead? All of that is important because our flourishing is found in following God's ways uh, and not following after our own desires, coveting that which God deems improper and becoming idolaters. Everybody says amen to no sexual immorality, but what about improper speech? We are all, in one sense, you know, hosts of uh, late-night talk shows. We uh, take down people and um, 
you know, the, 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 the presidential roast that happens once a year by the press corps happens every day in our office spaces, in our, uh, in, in, in our relationships, in families. Improper speech includes all kinds of things, crude words, rude words, verbal abuse. All of this have become the norm in the world, but are not to be found in the church. We ought to differentiate ourselves from the world in our church. So besides uh, coarse joking, there are other forms of speech that ought to be not seen among us. Exaggeration. You always do this, or you, uh, you are, you know, all forms of exaggeration, or even emotional manipulations are improper. And a lot of that goes on from pulpits. All deception ought to be removed from our lives. How we speak to each other matters to God. This is one of the ways God has given us to build one another up in Christ. In the world, but not off the world. I should have made this the last one. Struggle's real. You know, Christians have chosen to respond in two extremes sometimes. How, do I, how am I in the world and not off the world? Sometimes, uh, quite often, fundamentalists and uh, conservative people have chosen the way of separation. Uh, so we separate ourselves into, from the world. You know, we are little ghettos. Uh, but that's disobedience to God. God wants us to be in the world. We are his light in the darkness. That is to uh, disobey the commission that he has been given to us. We are called to separation, but a separation that is marked by distinct lives in the midst of darkness, not a separation uh, that removes us geographically or physically uh, from unbelievers. The other approach that Christians have taken is just to completely assimilate to the world. There's no difference between the world and the church, and that too robs us of our witness. What do we need to be saved from those which we enjoy? Uh, God has saved us from these things, and we are the ways through which God exposes the darkness. What is sin? What is righteousness? What's God's judgment? So we need to be in the world, and as I said earlier, Jesus is our example. He's the Holy One of God. Instead of becoming unclean by what he touched, he makes clean that which he touches. He spoke truth. He tells that woman who was caught in adultery, he didn't say that you're not guilty. He said, don't go, go and sin no more, is what he says. And, and those who come into contact with him by his holiness are transformed. And we as his people who are in Christ ought to live such a life that those who with whom we come into contact are transformed by our presence. Redeeming the time. You know, there are two ex extremes in our use of time. Uh, some waste time in, in, in frivolous uh, distractions. TikTok videos, you know, video games. Uh, hey, laugh at it, but some of those videos are really good. Um, uh, <laughs> um, you know, social media posts. None of them are bad in themselves. There's lots of good that can be done with them. They can be used redemptively. What is wrong is when they become distractions from that which builds people up, which is ways of shining our light into the darkness. If that's one extreme, people are frittering away time. The other extreme is people are so busy and they think they don't have time, but in their busyness they waste the time in doing things that ought to be done, that truly meaningful and life-giving things in which they ought to be lived in, they ought to be, uh, ought to be done. They are busy with that, those things that are not according to the will of God, not, according, not pleasing to God in the sense that they're not aligned with what God is doing in gathering all things in Christ. 
We want to redeem time from both of these extremes. This doesn't mean you hang out in 1776 all week long. Uh, you know, we are to be God's people in the darkness. So in your workplace, in your home, in your community, uh, go about doing good, speaking truth, living righteously. Uh, that is redeeming the time. That's how we ought to live. Finally, spirit-filled worship. You know, worship takes various forms besides music and singing and will one day characterize all of life uh, when the very presence of sin is removed. Uh, even the breath we take will be worship of God because even well, as today, even our righteous deeds are tainted by sin. Uh, but when, when sin is removed, all that we do will be worship as unto God. And that's already begun in the church where even in our eating and our drinking, we are called to uh, do it to the glory of God. But meanwhile, it is this time together when we gather for worship that looks like worship, which one day will characterize all of life. It, this, this section primarily speaks of worship and singing and music. As I said earlier, uh, the one thing we can know is that different genres of music are to be used in worship as long as they are spirit-empowered forms of worship. If that's the case, where is the room for these worship wars that we see in our churches? As, as spirit-filled people, we give room for other forms of worship that the Spirit inspires. They may not be our preference, but that's what the Spirit moves others uh, to worship. That's how spirit-filled believers are led to sing and worship God. I, I, a lady mentioned to me the other day that uh, she and her son have different forms of music that they prefer in worship. Uh, the son acknowledges that that's his mother's music, and the mother acknowledges this is his son's music, and there's room for both because they love one another, and it is the same spirit that leads them to worship the same Lord. I, I, I don't know who it was, this Pastor Dave, or someone used to say, you don't like that song, wait till the next one. Uh, <laughs> that may be your mother's song. This would be your song. So give room. I love what uh, Tom's doing. He took uh, jazz forms and, uh, and uh, fuses them with uh, uh, good old hymns. Uh, and that brings two worlds together. So uh, let's not fight with each other about forms of music. We're looking for a worship pastor. We want to bring him to a place where uh, people enjoy all forms of worship or music at worship of God and not fighting with each other. Uh, live as children of life, light. Live as wise children. Stay away from sexual immorality. That instruction goes all the way back to Acts chapter 15, and we're still <laughs> speaking of that. Uh, and stay away from improper speech, because we are people who have God's kingdom as our inheritance because of what Jesus Christ has done. We are no longer under God's wrath. Live freely. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your great gift to us, your Son, Jesus, our Lord, your Holy Spirit who indwells us, through whom alone we can discern what is pleasing to you, know what your will is and how it is to be applied in, in the daily affairs of life. Help us to live as that children of light who live wisely in this dark and foolish world so that even through our feeble lives, you are pleased to bring people to that same light in which we find ourselves, people who belong to your kingdom, people who are empowered by your spirit. Thank you that that's your plan, and you will do it through us. We submit to your, uh, to your will, empower us by your spirit, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, 
national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.